Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who spoke this word to his disciples with a crowd thronged around. Pray today that we would be listening to these very important words of Jesus and you would help us to uh, be convicted of the things we need to be convicted of and uh, to grow where we need to grow. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to put an image on the screen in a sec. Uh, some of you will respond to it with profound emotion. Some of you will laugh, some of you will cry, some of you will just be bored, but you'll be entertained by the people who laugh and cry. Some of you will relive past glories, I dare say. Some of you may require a bit of counselling. I'll be around after the service. Oh, now I've really rented up, haven't I? Yes, I am talking about Monopoly. People play Monopoly. Who put your hand up to play Monopoly? Who likes Monopoly? Put your hand up if you like Monopoly. I grew up and Christmas afternoon was Monopoly time. It happened a couple of times and then my parents regretted it because every year I'd say, the whole family has to play Monopoly and how long does Monopoly last? Uh, until you die, that's right. Um, who hates Monopoly, by the way? Yeah, you're allowed to hate Monopoly. My brother <laughs> Rob hates Monopoly. Traumatic experiences from Christmas afternoons. Yep, I'm with you. Friends, here's my strategy for winning Monopoly. I have one of these superstitious strategies. Here's my strategy. You've got to have the car. You know that, don't you? Whoever has the car wins. And when you have the car, then you have to get Mayfair and Park Lane and put those horrible little tacky hotels on it. And then people land on it and you, you dance and you, you know, upset them. Because the point of Monopoly is to get other people to be bankrupt and to lose friendships. They're the two goals of Monopoly. Um, it's a game of investing yourself into a world of getting ahead in property and cash. Some people get incredibly invested in it, don't they? <laughs> this sort of game. Here's the most important thing that you need to understand about the game of Monopoly, to play it well, to play it properly. At the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. That is the main thing you need to understand about the game of Monopoly. It doesn't matter where you end up in the game. At the end of the game, it ends up back in the box. You could own everything on the board. You could make other people cry as you make them mortgage those things over and over again. But at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. And at that moment, bigger things, things outside the game, are the things that matter again. In fact, they mattered all along. You just forgot because you got too invested in the game. At the end of the game... It all goes back in the box, and the world outside, beyond the game, is what matters afterwards. Friends, our our series is about Jesus and suburbia. Uh, We're trying to think about how living as followers of Jesus changes how we live in suburbia today. The most important thing I want you to hear today is at the end of the game, it goes back in the box. At the end of the game, that all goes back in the box. And at that point... It's very, very important that we haven't been striving after laughably silly paper money in houses made out of plastic. It matters a lot, because at the game it all goes back in the box. It doesn't matter where you come in the game. What matters is what's beyond the game. What matters is what lasts beyond the game. Have a look what Jesus said uh, in, in, in chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Flick down to to, to, um, verse 33 there. 
bottom of the page, assuming you get the same Bible as me. Um, but seek first God's kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Friends, when this game of life is done, what will matter is whether you're with Jesus or whether you're not with Jesus, whether you're in his kingdom or not in his kingdom. And it'll matter a lot about whether we've lived as if the game here and now is the thing that matters or what's beyond the game is the thing that matters. What's beyond this life is what matters. Don't store up for yourself treasures in earth where moths and vermin destroy and steal and, and that sort of thing. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, outside the box. Because at the game, end of the game, everything here goes back in the box. And other people come and play the game and they don't remember you and they don't care that you played the game with the same resources before you did. They just play the game as well and forget that... The, their game's going in the back of the box as well. This man here, John D. Rockefeller, a lot of folks reckon he's the richest man that ever lived. Um, economists like to kind of calculate who the richest person ever lived was. It's kind of hard because how do you compare Genghis Khan to, to Bill Gates? Like, they were both very rich people. Um, so they try and do some sums and stuff. To, but, but, but this guy here, John D. Rockefeller, uh, is uh, one of the stronger contenders for the richest person in history. In the early 1900s, he owned 90% of American oil. That's a pretty, pretty big deal. It was worth $340 billion by today's standards, which is about four times what Bill Gates has. Uh, he was very, very successful in real-life Monopoly, uh, probably because he looks like a Monopoly man. I mean, come on. He does, doesn't he? In fact, was the Monopoly man based on him? It looks like he could have been. I don't know. Uh, I know he's Mr. Moneybags, but anyway. When he died in 1937... Uh, a reporter asked um, Mr. Rockefeller's uh, accountant the question everybody wanted to know. Uh, he died very old. Uh, it, they said, how much did John D. leave? And the accountant replied, he left all of it. Smart aleck accountant. Good answer, though, hey? It goes back in the box. It's all gone. He doesn't get to take it with him. This is week three of our series on Jesus and suburbia. Jesus challenges the values of suburbia. We're talking about Jesus plus suburbia. Pretty quickly, it becomes Jesus versus suburbia because you realise that striving after things in this world is the opposite of what Jesus is talking about striving after as we live as disciples of Jesus. And so he sets up an opposition between the two. It's certainly true of this passage. He says it really bluntly. Have a look at verse uh, 24. He says it very bluntly. Um, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, that's pretty extreme, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says there's a choice between two incompatible options. I think it's worth labelling that there's a way of engaging with this. Maybe we feel this, but we wouldn't say it so boldly, a reaction that we often have. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. And if you're anything like me and you're honest, your reply is, yeah, I can. Watch me. I mean, can't I? Why can't I serve God and money? I come to church, I trust in Jesus. Why can't I serve God and money? Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You can't serve those two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's being deadly serious. And it seems to be the point is that over time, what you live for will end up being what you trust, it'll be the direction of your entire life. The things of this world will end up crushing your faith in Jesus if you live for the things of this world. There's going to be one of two masters at the end of the day. It'll either be God or stuff. 
If you're devoted to your kingdom, then your service to God's kingdom will suffer and wither. If you're devoted to God's kingdom, then chances are your friends, neighbours, colleagues and so on will think you're crazy at the end of the day because you're not living for stuff. And everybody else is living for stuff and they forget that it all goes back into the box. Friends, we need to think really clearly and carefully about choosing sides because that's how Jesus presents the thing, isn't it? He says you have to serve one or the other. And you say, well, I trust Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus says, well, make sure you're not serving the other master. We've got to think carefully about it. This is our commitment series. It's it's basically a chance to kind of um, take stock of how we're going in practical ways and to think about what our service of Jesus looks like at the moment. And how can I do better? How can I grow as a follower of Jesus? Um, When there's real work to do in life, you think, you plan, you act, you get on with it in a serious way. You get smart about it. So we want to get smart as followers of Jesus and say, how can I follow God where I might be following money now? Um, One of our values as a church is adventurous. Um, It's one of our stranger values. Um, Why adventurous? Well, because Jesus says, don't follow money, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in our society, that's adventurous. It's it's a little strange, really. Some might say it's reckless. You're not going to live for money. We, have, we, we ask this question under the, our value of adventurous. How is the kingdom shaping, the kingdom of God that is, shaping your time, your talents, and your treasure? How is it shaping your diary? How do you spend your time in a way that re- reflects the priority of God's kingdom? Talents, what are you good at? Are you using that to serve the Lord Jesus? Treasure, and yes, I'll talk about money. How does your spending express devotion to Jesus and his kingdom? Am I serving God or money? Well, the other way of asking that question in a really practical way, I think, is asking this question and answering it in real concrete, practical terms. How is the kingdom in here and now shaping my time, my talents, and my treasure? We should write that down and work it out and answer it really seriously because it's serious business, according to Jesus. I'm going to talk about money. The reason I'm going to talk about money is because Jesus does, and he seems to think it's a rather big deal here. Um, following money is a massive, massive temptation for Australians like you and me. Massive temptation. Um, we are one of the richest societies in the entire history of the world. It really just is as simple as that. Um, we are one of the richest societies in the world right now. Um, you and I have no idea how wealthy we are, and we're getting wealthier. Because I did this sermon somewhere else a couple of years ago, and the stats were we, we weren't as rich then as we are now by world standards. Um, if you earn $30,000 a year before tax, that puts you in the top 4% of incomes in the world. $30,000 a year before tax, that's the top 4% of incomes in the world. If you earn $50,000 a year before tax, you are in the top 1% of incomes in the entire world. Fifty grand a year, top 1%. We have no idea how wealthy we are. Here's how wealthy we are in Australia. If you don't have a job and you go on the new start allowance while you look for work, you will be paid uh, base base level, uh, single note dependence, $13,608.40 a year. That would put you in the top 18% of richest people in the world. 80% of the world is poorer than you and you don't have a job. That, that's how rich we are in Australia. It's it, absolutely staggering. We live in the eastern suburbs of planet Earth. We do. But I think... If you're like me, you struggle to see yourself as really rich. There's several roadblocks that kind of get in the way of our perception and we just don't see ourselves accurately. We don't see ourselves as rich people. We think we're not the rich people. Rich people are other people. 
a couple of roadblocks that stop us seeing ourselves accurately. I'll give you two. There's more. Here's a couple of big ones. Comparing ourselves to our neighbours. That might sound really strange at first, because surely rich is comparison, isn't it? A rich person is richer, like has more wealth than these other people over here. But what I'm saying is, when we compare ourselves to those around us, it actually stops us seeing ourselves accurately because you are comparing yourself to people in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. You're on the eastern suburbs of planet Earth going, these people are in the top 1% of the world, but they're richer than me, therefore they're rich, and I'm not rich. No, we are rich, friends, in monetary terms. We really, really are. Um, this sort of, I'll put it this way. Um, Donald Trump has uh, $4 billion to his name. Bill Gates has $80 billion to his name, or 79.4, I think, um, Forbes said this year. Um, Is it okay for Donald Trump to say, I am not rich because Bill Gates has 20 times my wealth? Of course it's not okay. It's ridiculous. He's got $4 billion. He's incredibly rich. But that's the game we play all the time when we compare ourselves to those in our suburb around us and say, they're richer than me because they have a bigger house They've got a better car, they go on better holidays and they have a bit more cash in the bank account than I do. One percenters comparing themselves to one percenters on really trivial things. We need to tell ourselves, I am rich. You need to tell yourself it, I am rich. There's a thing to help stopping yourself doing that and it's the second, second roadblock I've, I've, I've got for today. The other roadblock to accurately seeing our wealth is redefinition of what necessities for life are. As a society gets richer, the list of things under necessities that you must have gets bigger and longer. It just does. Um, Because wealth doesn't just satisfy longings. Wealth creates new longings. The list of necessities grows longer. Not only that, as we get richer, the things that are life's real necessities, they become so normal that we don't even see them as part of our wealth anymore. Most of it isn't the money in your bank account. Wealth is having running water. Wealth is having food on your plate. When the people of the Old Testament talked about being rich, what they meant is I work really hard and I get to eat at the end of the day. That's what prosperity was in the Old Testament. We've just lost sight of what it means to be rich. You know what wealth is? It's having a police force and an effective rule of law. The thing that separates the poorest people in the world today from those above them, the biggest thing is that they don't live under the effective rule of law and so they can't amass the basic necessities of life in a, in a, in a way that is, is reliable. Friends, effective policing is one of the most valuable commodities we have and we don't even think about it as wealth. We're incredibly wealthy to have a police force that works and public health care. Gosh, we're rich. <laughs> but we've redefined necessities so much and made the list so long and ignore the things that are actual necessities. Look at the necessities Jesus talks about. Let him define it. Have a look at verse 25 and go, just notice the things that Jesus says you need. Okay? Uh, we'll read through this section. Verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Do you not see how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. Is that how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire? And will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry, saying, what will we eat? 
what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. The pagans who run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Oh great, so God will give me all my necessities. Well, make sure you get the list right. What are your necessities? Food, drink, clothing, and the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) They are your necessities. Other things beyond that are good things to have, really wonderful things to have, but they're not necessities. Put them on the right side of the column. Necessities, luxuries. Everything else is a luxury. We've so thrown everything on the necessity side of the column. Do Do you see what I'm saying? And we'd be so much more thankful to God for what we have, I think, if we, made, if, we, if we had that more accurate, what do I need? Food, drink, clothing in the kingdom of God. That's what I need. And praise God I have more than that. Praise God I have those things that he's providing for me. But we've redefined necessity so much that the things we define rich and richer about are really trivial luxuries like houses, cars, holidays, gadgets and technology. Uh, they're the richer people things. They're the things that make people rich. Friends, we need to get an accurate perception of ourselves and say, I am rich, I am wealthy beyond what people of the past and most people in the world today could dream. I really am. And label the material things, not the money you've got, as your wealth. Your running water, the roof over your head, the clothing on your back, that's wealth, that's material wealth. Gosh, we're wealthy. Now, Jesus says... Verse 19, do not store up for yourself treasures on heaven where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Heavenly treasure lasts forever. Earthly treasure starts wearing out. When? Starts wearing out before you bought it. That's when it started wearing out. Wears away real quick. And Jesus' explanation is where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. That is, the things that you in practice treasure and grab hold of and pursue, your heart will end up loving those things because you've spent your time treasuring them. Your heart will love earthly wealth and lead you to live for earthly wealth and that'll lead you away from Jesus. Jesus gives a bit of a, a strategy, I suppose. It's really an explanation, but it's also a strategy of how to grow in a heart that treasures the right things. It's very strange, though. Have a look at verse 22. Um, I, I find it very helpful, actually. How do I um, not store myself up treasures on, on earth? Um, well, he says, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light, will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is saying, asking the question, what do you stare longingly at? What do you spend your time looking at? What do you spend your time with your eyes focusing on? Because the idea is what you focus on comes through your eyes and goes down to your heart and shapes your heart. If your eyes stare on good things, then your heart will be full of light. You'll stare at how can I actively promote the kingdom of God? How can I live for God? If you spend your time looking for things like that, you'll be a person who loves living for the kingdom of God. Over time, it'll just shape who you are. But if you spend your time latching onto things that decay, well, that's an unhealthy set of eyes that ends up with an unhealthy heart that loves things that just fade away. And you wonder why your faith isn't strong anymore. It's because your eyes have been looking at things that fade away all the time, just focusing on pursuits and things that fade away and decay. Friends, we, we need to take very seriously 
the things you spend your time looking at will shape who you are. That's what Jesus is saying. Imagine your eyes being like a channel that the stuff you look at comes in and goes into your heart. That's the picture. The things you look at will shape subtly, shape who you are, and they'll shape how you live and what you treasure. Really, really basic examples, you get the point. It's a trivial example, you get the idea. Um, I, I, I went to the letterbox the other day, and there's a wad of junk mail about this thick. You know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's real. Oran Park's got heaps of junk mail now. I don't know when that happened. Um, I, I, I grabbed a hold of the thing and walked back in the letterbox, and Caleb, my five-year-old, said to me, Hey, Daddy, what's that? And I said, It's recycling. And I put it in the recycling bin. Because what is it? It's a bunch of adverts for stuff that I don't need to spend my time looking at. Because it's things I don't need. And it's, it won't profoundly change me looking at those things, and it's fine to look at those things. But the point is, over time, as I look more and more at things like that, that will shape who I am. It just will. It'll shape what I care about. It'll shape my heart. And so I want to be really smart about, why would I look at these things saying, wow, this is cheap. I should get it because it's cheap. Not because I need it. Because it's cheap. I need it, apparently. Why not just not look at it to start with? I'm already abundantly provided for. It doesn't matter how cheap that stuff is at Big W. I don't need it. And I don't need to be shaped by it. But if our eyes are always just staring after the next thing that's advertised, well, we'll end up loving the next thing that's advertised. That seems to be how it works. It's what Jesus is saying. But on the other hand, if we're always asking the question, how is the kingdom of God shaping my time, my talents and my treasure? and I'm eagerly looking for ways to do that, that'll make you look more like Jesus over time. It'll make you love the things Jesus loves. And you'll live that way more and more. Friends, I want to give you three sort of points of application about this uh, treasuring heavenly things and, and, and developing a heart that loves heavenly things. Fairly practical things. Um, good. The first thing I want to say is be committed to serving God's kingdom not just individually. Be committed to serving God's kingdom at the level of your household. Here's why. Um, It's very easy to think that you have no money because you've cordoned off wads of your possessions and wealth and income for family life, and that's off limits. I've heard it said, uh, uh, as we go through life and different life stages, we develop sets of unlabeled contracts unlabeled contracts with ourselves and others. We don't call them contracts, but that's what they are. It's a set of rigid expectations that we just won't shift on about how we must live. And we haven't called them that. And so we live by them and and, and spend our money on those things without challenging them and questioning, is that the best way to do it? Um, And we just get on with doing that and then think, well, we don't have any money to to, to give to anything. So you get married. Um, You quickly come to a shared mind that you're going to live a certain lifestyle at a certain level. Uh, That feels like a non-negotiable. And, and maybe you don't talk about it again. Maybe you just sort of go with the flow and you, 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 you amass things and you do how you think the relationship's supposed to work, but you're actually living by an unlabeled contract. Why, are those, why is that set of possessions you're, you're using in your marriage, you're committed to in your marriage, off limits to talk about changing for the sake of the kingdom of God? Or you have kids and you develop a sense of the kind of lifestyle they should enjoy and they must enjoy and what they should expect from you. And so there's toys and hobbies and outings and endless sport and lessons and it quickly becomes the norm and they expect it and we expect it and everybody's agreed. It's a contract which we haven't labelled as a contract and we're going to live this way and we're not going to challenge it. Labelling things is so powerful. We're, we're investing our resources here. Is that a good idea? So powerful just to ask the question. 
or you retire. I have no experience of retiring. You can tell me about it. And you inherit a sense, I take it, of what retirement's supposed to look like from the people around you, and you can easily expect to live that way yourself. And it's very easy to come to unlabeled contracts about what must be in your retirement. I mean, even those who are planning retirement way early have those sort of expectations we don't think about, perhaps. And then there's the endless agreements we've made with ourselves about the kind of career we must have. Is that actually a good idea for the kingdom of God? We haven't asked that question because it's an unlabeled commitment we have to ourselves. I must have this kind of work. I must pursue this career. I must have these hobbies because that's part of who I am. But that's actually making your identity in monopoly land. <laughs> and it goes back in the box. And if your identity is part of monopoly land, it goes back in the box. But if you shaped your identity by how can I make, get the kingdom of God to shape my time, talents, and treasure, direct those things. My identity is a servant of the Lord Jesus and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Our identity will change. We challenge these sort of unlabeled contracts we have with ourselves and others. So it's really important to do it at the level of family. Have a look at what Jesus says in verse 33. Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom and his righteousness. And those necessities, those bare necessities, um, we would call them, I suppose, will be given to you as well. For most of us, committing to giving money, for example, is a, a decision that has to have happen in conjunction with other people, a spouse, a family. Um, and so we need to do that and we have to discuss it as families. That's the main point I want to say here. And parents, I want to say this is what it means to lead your kids as disciples of Jesus. Uh, talking to a family who, um, not, not from here, um, uh, they decided to go on a cheaper holiday so they could devote more, time, more money to a particular ministry that they believed in. Um, they didn't just declare that to the children. Here's how they did it. Very smart. They sat down with the kids and said, guys, we're, we're following Jesus and we think the kingdom of God is the most important thing in the world. So how about we do this cheaper holiday rather than going to this place way over, this way more expensive and, 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 and show that we really value following Jesus by how we invest our money in this ministry instead. And the kids were on board with it because they've been growing up with making those kinds of decisions as families of treasuring the kingdom of God in, in really practical ways. It needs to happen at the level of our parenting, at the level of our household. The second thing I want to say, uh, as a point of application, is use a budget. So, this is, you're not going to believe me. This has been the most helpful thing for me and my family over the last two or three years. Um, I can tell you exactly how much we spent on clothing last year if I look at my budget because we set a number and we kept to it or we tried to. I don't know if we kept to it. I can't remember. But we tried. Do you know what I mean? We, we, we said this is how much we plan to spend in this area and some things were unrealistic and so we changed it and, and we've gotten smarter at knowing how to live well on a certain amount of money and then having more money to devote to more important things like the kingdom of God. Um, I spoke to, um, it's not just people who uh, aren't money people, um, I spoke to an accountant, does it for a living, right? Um, and he didn't live by a budget. Um, he sent me the budget he uses, here it is. It's real simple. At the top is, there's fortnightly after tax, in, oh, this, is just, this is not his income, it's just an example. Um, there's a bunch of things that you spend your money on, set a, set a level for a month, you'll have to add a lot more columns, um, and then aim to keep to that, and then assess how you've done at the end of the month, each month, and, and try and make realistic goals, and, and you'll be able to actually objectively look at where your money goes. Here's what he found. This is incredible. He and his wife, no kids at this point, he and his wife both had a, a, an income that was pretty decent. Um, he said most of your money goes on, um, what do you call it, impulse spending. We did this, 
And we saved almost my wife's entire income in impulse spending. Because they're two people that they're rich. They're rich beyond anything they need. And just by setting some numbers and saying, oh, we need to keep to this, and then you keep stopping the impulse decisions all the time, just saying, no, we haven't got money aside for that. That's not in the budget. Changes how you spend your money. Gosh. We've got to get smart about how we use our resources. Uh, I found it a very, very practical, helpful thing. It means I know what I'm really spending rather than what my perception is, and my perception's wrong. Um, Yeah, my perception is wrong. Friends, the last thing to say is we need to grow in generosity. Keep asking the question, how's my time, talents, and treasure being used to serve God's kingdom? By having a budget, you can actually answer that for your money really objectively. If you don't have a budget, I reckon you can't answer that question. Um, so I'm a really big fan of that. I think it helps us be smarter as disciples of Jesus and work out how we're really living, whether our eyes are always latching onto worldly things or opportunities to serve the kingdom of God. Healthy sets of eyes are always looking for better ways to serve the Lord Jesus. So Jesus challenges us with these words on the screen. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. The real necessities, food, drink, clothing, kingdom of heaven. They're the things you need. Everything else is luxury. And at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. And when it goes back in the box, well, it matters a great deal whether we've invested well or not. I hope you find that very challenging because I do. I've got work to do. I've got to go and look at my budget and work out whether it actually reflects the heart of a person who loves Jesus and thinks everything goes back in the box and the kingdom of heaven really matters. I hope you're challenged as well. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that the kingdom of heaven lasts forever and that nothing there fades or decays and that everything there is good and you wouldn't want it to fade or decay. Thank you for the joy of knowing that in heaven our hearts will say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have healthy eyes that seek to serve the kingdom of heaven rather than tiny little houses that fade away and careers that fade away and all the things that fade away and go back in the box. Please help us, by your spirit, to be really wise, smart, and to make difficult decisions joyfully that we'd serve our Lord Jesus much better. And we ask it in his name. Amen.